But we now come to the fourth and final installment of our series, Oceans of Grace, which is based on a book of the Bible called Jonah. It is, of course, so named for the prophet who is its central character. Thus far, Jonah has had quite the experience. That's putting it mildly. In chapter 1, we met him when he ran from God and the call to preach to his enemies and warn them of coming judgment. Jonah did not much like that idea, and he opted instead to set sail in the opposite direction. But it was not a pleasure cruise in any sense of that term. At sea, the ship encountered a violent storm. Jonah was thrown overboard and found by a huge fish. In chapter 2, while still inside of said fish, he composed a worship song. He thanked God for saving him from drowning in the deep. And he promised that when he got out of the fish, he was going to let other people know about how God had rescued him. In chapter 3, on being discharged from said fish, Jonah journeyed to the city of Nineveh, his original destination, and he delivered God's message. The entire populace of the city responded with humble repentance of their sin, and God forgave them. That brings us to the closing chapter. Now, I might have titled this message a peeved and pouting prophet, because that's, that's what it is. Jonah is in full meltdown mode. I've got a couple of kiddos at home. I love them to death. Not all of our moments together are, um, well, how do you want to say it? Beautiful. Um, if you've ever raised a toddler, you know they've got their moments, right? Where, the, where they, they just melt down. They've got a tantrum. That's what's going on with Jonah in chapter 4. Right? He, is, he is angry not only that the people of Nineveh have repented, he is angry that God would dare to forgive them. God would dare to extend grace to them. He goes off, God, I, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this is how it would end. That's why I ran in the first place. So if this is how it's going to be, just do me a favor, kill me right now. Like I said, tantrum. And with that, he stomps off to camp outside the city, watching and hoping that God will change his mind and torch the place. Then in a book that is punctuated by unusual twists, something curious happens. God causes a vine to grow to cover Jonah with some shade from the sun. Jonah likes this. He now has a comfortable spot from which to watch the fireworks. Things are starting to look up. But then God sends a worm to attack the vine. And the vine withers. And a scorching wind begins to blow. Yet again, the prophet begins to pout. Woe is me. Life is so hard. Resuming their prior conversation, God asks Jonah, Really? 
should you be angry about the vine, Jonah? And Jonah explodes, yes, I have every right to be angry right now. In fact, I'm so upset, I could die. Dramatic. God replies, what about the people, Jonah? What about the people? You're upset about a vine. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't tend to it. It sprung up in a day. It died in a day. You're upset about a vine. Shouldn't I care about the tens of thousands of lost souls in the city? Well played, God. Well played. It's a relatively short chapter in a relatively small book. But I find that it has enormous implications and enormous applications for us. So let's get to work. We'll start with this. Grace sets the precedent. Grace sets the precedent. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. But that's how chapter 4 starts with a contrast, which is significant because chapter 3 ends with Nineveh repenting and God forgiving. But Jonah doesn't like this. Jonah is not happy about this. Jonah is angry. He does not approve. The Hebrew text here is is quite forceful. Jonah sees this as an evil. In Jonah's eyes, an injustice has been done. This is nothing short of a disaster. This wasn't supposed to happen. This isn't how the story should end. They should not get off so easy. Remember who we're talking about here, God. Remember what they've done. They deserve to die for their crimes. It's not fair. No. It's not fair. It's not fair. There's a sense in which Jonah is correct. Okay, because not once in this book, throughout the entire conversation, not once does God deny that the Ninevites deserve punishment. On the contrary, he affirms that they're bad people. They've done bad things. They are guilty, and yet God wants to forgive them anyway. Church, this is positively scandalous. It's not fair. And that, dear church, is exactly the point. Because heaven help us all if God is fair. Fair says we get what we deserve. Where does that leave us? 
I'll tell you where it leaves us. Guilty. Condemned. Cut off from life. Cut off from God. Hellbound. That's where it leaves us. Listen, church, God is just, but he is not fair. Mercy is not fair. Forgiveness is not fair. Getting a second, a third, a fourth chance is not fair. Thank God for that, yeah? Thank God he's not fair. Now, there's, there's an irony to all of this. Grace is not a new theme in the plot. This, this is not something that gets introduced into the story in chapter 4. This, this has been interwoven throughout the whole thing. It, it, it has been ever-present. Right? It's, it's not like we come to chapter 4 and like, surprise! Wow, I didn't see that coming. But here's the thing. Up to this point, who has been on the receiving end of it? Jonah. Jonah has been. He ran away from God, but God sent a storm to turn him around. He got thrown into the, the sea in the middle of a storm, short of drowned, but God sent a fish. Grace upon grace on top of grace. Jonah recognizes this. He writes a song about it. But all of a sudden, we get to chapter 4, and he changes his tune. Why? Because someone else is the beneficiary, namely his enemies, people that he doesn't like. Now that he's not the one profiting, he wants justice. Revenge, God, drop the hammer. He's out for blood. Can you see how Jonah is essentially asking God to adopt a double standard? God, forgive me, love me, save me, show grace to me, but don't do it for them. Not that we would know anything about double standards, would we? Church, I wonder, are we able to see the hypocrisy in this? We, we don't have a monopoly on grace. We don't own the rights to it. God does. We who have been forgiven, do we stand ready to forgive? Time and again, Scripture teaches us to do this. Forgive, forgive, forgive. How are we to forgive? Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Forgive as you have been forgiven. To say that differently, God's grace to us sets the precedent for us. This is the standard. This is the pattern by which we are to live our lives, by which we are to operate. We don't get to keep it all to ourselves, church. Listen, if, if, if we really get grace, then we will give grace. And, and if in your life you have a hard time 
giving grace, then I would back up and ask the question, do you really get it? Do you see it for what it is? Do you, do you understand what it is that God has done for you? One of my favorite preachers is a guy by the name of J.D. Greer. And he says it's something like this. If we cannot forgive, it's because we are out of touch with how much we've been forgiven. With how gracious God has been to us. So, so let's, let's just shift this from the hypothetical, from, from the abstract into the practical. Here it is. Who do you need to forgive? What do you need to forgive? To whom do you need to extend grace? Now, maybe you would say, well, they don't deserve it. Right, they don't. That's why it's grace. Grace isn't something we earn, church. It's something that's given freely. See, God, God, God has enough grace for everybody. There's, there's not a shortage of this. Who do you need to forgive? Let's keep going here. The world hopes for what we know. Take a look at what Jonah says in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So here we get a glimpse into Jonah's thought process and, and his motives. What has, what has driven him throughout this story? And essentially he says, God, I knew it. I knew this is where we would end up. I knew this is who you are. Now, the, the tone of this is really important. Right again, it's, it's not just what you say, it's also how you say it. Remember that Jonah's angry. He's, he's mad. He thinks there has been an injustice done. And so this reads like an, an indictment. This reads like an accusation, like, like Jonah is bringing God up on charges. And yet, what he says is an accurate characterization of who God is. Okay, follow this. Jonah's theology is spot on. Jonah knows who God is. This is incredibly accurate information, but it has not changed his heart. He admits he tried to sabotage this. God, I wanted to throw a wrench in this before it even got started. Now contrast Jonah's words with, with what some of the other characters in the story have set up to this point. So back in chapter 1, the ship's captain told Jonah this. Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Fast forward to chapter 3. The Assyrian king makes a similar statement. Let everyone call urgently on God. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Maybe. Who knows? 
Here's, here's the point that I'm, I'm driving at. These folks hope that God is gracious, that God is compassionate, that God is loving, something that Jonah knew all along. Church, can I tell you that this scenario has not changed? There's a world full of people who are hoping for the God that we know. They're hoping for second chances. They're hoping for grace. Listen, our theology, as accurate as it may be, is worthless if it doesn't change our hearts. It accomplishes nothing. We can intellectually understand everything there is to know about God, but if it does not change our behavior, if it does not stir us to compassion and move us to do something, it means nothing, church. There's a conversation that's found in the book of James. James was a younger brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. And he's writing about faith and action. And he says, don't don't just be people who hear the word, be people who do the word, people who put it into practice. And right in the middle of that conversation, he asks a question. He says, "So, so you say that you believe there's one God? Good for you. Gold star. You know who else believes that? The demons. Demons know who God is. That clearly has zero effect on who they are. He says, if this is to affect us, if this is to accomplish something, if this is to, to change us and the world around us, it needs to go from our heads to our hearts. And for Jonah, it did not do that. Here's the question that I would ask you, friends. Who in your path needs the answers that you already have? Who in your path needs the hope, the good news that you already possess? And are you giving it to them? There's more here. God provides whether we like it or not. Now, what does that mean? Verse 6, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. There, there, Jonah. Here's a nice glass of water. I'll tuck you in. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. All right, let's, let's just be honest here. These have to be some of the weirdest verses in the entire Bible. Can, can I just say that? Like this, this book, Jonah, this is a book of oddities, isn't it? Have, have you ever been to one of those Ripley's Believe It or Not museums? I feel like Jonah should have an exhibit in there, right? And that, that's not to say any of this stuff is untrue. It's just really weird. But, but there's a point to it. Because the prophet is still pouting, still hoping that God is going to carpet bomb Nineveh. 
And as he sits there sulking, God grows this plant to shade him. And Jonah's very happy about the plant. I'm nice and comfy. Then, then God sends this worm to destroy the plant that just grew up. And after that, this, this hot desert wind starts to bombard Jonah, and he once again throws a fit. And this is where God points out the dissonance. Jonah, you have all of this concern for a vine. And, and you could care less about the people of Nineveh. You, you hate the people of Nineveh. Don't, don't you see the dissonance in that? This, this whole thing was a setup. God set Jonah up. Now, did you notice how each time we're told God provided? God provided a plan. God provided a worm. God provided a scorching wind. It's the same language that's used of the famous fish earlier in the story. Church, God provides for his people. He meets our needs. But what if what we need most is repentance? What if the deepest need that we have at any given moment is to wake up? What, what if we're in a place that is, that is outside of God's will, outside of God's design, his plan for us, and, and what we need is for the blinders to be taken off our eyes and to open our eyes to see past our own prejudices and folly and hypocrisy? What if that's what we need? Here's the good news. God provides for that too. Enter the worm. Sounds like a bad B movie, doesn't it? Enter the worm. But I want you to see this, church. The worm is God's grace just as much as the plant is. Sometimes the blessings that God gives you are comfortable. Sometimes the blessing that God gives you is uncomfortable. Sometimes God has to disrupt us. Sometimes he has to get our attention. Now, if you've been around for a minute, you more than likely have heard me talk about this before, this verse. We, we come back to it often because it lands in so many places in our lives. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I'm here to tell you, church, all things includes the worms. All things includes the scorching winds. All things includes the storms and the long, dark night spent inside of a fish. It includes the discomfort, the questions, the hard seasons, the bad days. God is, is teaching us. He's shaping us. He's growing us just like he did with Jonah. See, it's not always going to be pleasant or easy. That's not the promise. 
The promise is not comfort. The promise is good. What's your worm, friend? What's your worm? I, 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 could, I suppose I could ask the question, do you, do you have worms? But that would just come off wrong. <laughs> That's not in the script, by the way. We'll, we'll land this with a question. Here it is. How, how will the story end? Like, well, I, th- I thought you were supposed to tell us, Pastor Q. Verse 11, and should I not, this is God speaking, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? They don't know what they're doing, Jonah. They're blind. They're lost. More than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and all so many animals. If you're looking for another verse, there isn't one. The end. That's it. That's, that's where the book stops. It's open-ended. It's anticlimactic. There is no resolution. We're not told how Jonah responds. Wait, does this guy have a change of heart? Does, does he continue to protest and, and drag his feet and fight against God? Does, does, he, does he run away again? And meet a bigger fish? Does he leave his life as a prophet entirely? We, we don't know. We don't know. There's just this question that is posed by God and hanging in the air, awaiting an answer. And the answer waits on us. How will it end? Because here's the thing, this is our story, church. We, like Jonah, are the people of God who carry a message sent to a lost world. How does it end? How does it end? We supply the answer to that. Will we love our enemies? Will we pray for the people who hurt us, the people who hate us? Will we forgive? Will we share good news with those who need to hear it most? Will we celebrate as God's goodness transforms lives and wins the day? How does it end? You see, church, Nineveh awaits. Just past those doors. Nineveh waits on us. And God invites us to show this world oceans of grace that are vast and deep. Will we? Will we? How how do we respond? How does it end? We decide.